The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Pandemic turns a corner. This, as the lawmakers on Capitol Hill get ready for the final countdown to send $1.9 trillion to President Biden's desk. But at what cost? An exclusive interview with Senator Shelley Moore Capito, the top Republican on the Senate Environmental Protection and Workers Committee. And we check in with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia. Great lineup. Plus, Adam Goodman joins me and Jeannie Sean Zaino. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Adam Goodman's with me, national GOP media strategist and Edward R. Murrow Senior Fellow at Tufts University. Adam, I didn't know that. Congrats on the new gig. And Jeannie Sean Zaino, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Let's start tonight with the big story, and that is that lawmakers are inching closer to final passage, finally, of that $1.9 trillion stimulus, sending the bill to President Biden's desk likely sometime uh, within the next 24 to 48 hours. I've got sounds on this from Bharat Rumorati. He is the deputy director of the National Economic Council for Financial Reform and Consumer Protection. Take a listen to what he said at the White House earlier. The president and the vice president have made it a top priority to ensure that this round of small business relief is distributed more equitably and that the companies that may not have gotten relief before have a real shot at getting relief now. That was Bharat Ramamurti. And meanwhile, Jen Psaki also was asked about people getting some economic relief. Here's the White House press secretary earlier today weighing in with sound on that. We are doing everything in our power to expedite the payments and not delay them, which is why the president's name will not appear on the memo line of this round of stimulus checks. Uh, the checks will be signed by a career official at the Bureau of Fiscal Service. This is not about him. This is about the American people getting relief. I want to know how fast they're going to get them. Republicans, very skeptical of just how much money is in this bill and not just the price tag of the bill, but also that funds are in the bill that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican, she had this to say with regards to wasteful spending. We are going to be saddled with a burden, a spending burden, and a tax burden uh, that is really uh, indefensible from the perspective of what it actually accomplishes. Earlier today, I caught up with Senator Shelley Moore Capito. She is a Republican from West Virginia. Uh, and we were in the Senate, and I, and I asked her point blank. I mean, she went to the White House, folks, with President Biden and a group of other Republican senators a couple of weeks ago. 
and what they were pitched was a deal to negotiate with regards to the trillion $1.9 trillion stimulus. I asked her if she feels that this is a final plan that she can ultimately support if it has bipartisan support. Take a listen to what she told me. Well, I have serious concerns. First of all, we had five packages that we had done bipartisan uh, in the past over the past year. COVID uh, help and relief on the health side is exceedingly important. Uh, this bill has like 9% that goes to vaccines and testing and therapeutics. The rest is just a wish list of, uh, of, of filling up uh, buckets for basically the Democrats as they've been moving into uh, taking over the majority. And, and so that's d deeply disappointing. The other thing on it is I, I think that if you look at schools money, for instance, there's a lot of money still left in the schools that we put into place in, at the end of December, yet we're putting another hundred, over a hundred billion dollars into our schools and a lot of them still aren't open. So I'm very frustrated, not just with the process, but I went to the White House with nine other Republicans to say, let's negotiate. And we were basically shut out. So where where does the process stand now? Is this all but a done deal for likely signing? Oh, I think it's totally done deal. I think it's 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 too bad, too, because this is if the president in his uh, in his inauguration speech said he wanted unity. He represents all the people. He represents all uh all viewpoints. And yet when we get into a point where we can really negotiate with them, and he had us to the White House to do just that, uh, it falls very, very flat. So even as this is happening, there's other conversations that are brewing, particularly on funding for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. How have those preliminary talks been going on funding for infrastructure? Well, I'm on the EPW committee. I'm the ranking uh, Republican there. And I work with our chair, Senator Carper. We had a uh, surface transportation bill that we passed a year ago that was totally bipartisan, 21 to nothing, had a lot of really good things in it. That's going to be our base bill that we're going to start with. And we're going to start out bipartisan. Uh, and then, you know, it'll move to the Finance Committee to, to talk about the funding mechanisms. Now, I'm reading, like you are, all kinds of speculations as to what's going to happen. But I'm determined to do this the way we've always done it in the past, which is working together. I think the American Society of Civil Engineers put a price tag at somewhere like $3 trillion. It's a lot of money, especially after this latest stimulus round. Yeah, I mean, we've already spent probably in excess of $4 trillion on the on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and here we're coming up to something that we normally pay for, which is infrastructure, surface transportation, water projects. Uh, there's already been a lot of money in broadband. I mean, I know we need more, but, uh, you know, I, sure, if you had a wish list, we'd all say we want four trillion dollars but we got to be realistic here in terms of infrastructure and digital infrastructure in particular uh, president biden several weeks ago issued executive orders for trying to to make sure that the united states diversifies its supply chain from china mm -hmm. uh, especially with this semiconductor chip shortage right. uh, is this a bipartisan concern absolutely i mean we actually have had several votes on that and we had them previous to this administration. This is really important. Uh, I think what we learned in the pandemic in terms of supply chain, maybe not semiconductors, but swabs and uh, 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 pharmaceuticals that we need to produce in this country when we have an emergency. Well, we're being held hostage basically by countries, in particular uh, China, 
in terms of our lack of production and have the supply chain for our high-tech uh, industry. So let's move it back here. We can make it and we can, do, uh, we can do it very well and create a lot of jobs. How do you incentivize companies to bring them back here so that, they, so that we can diversify? Well, I think first of all, I think American companies basically want to produce in the United States. I think it's gotten away from us over the years because of cost issues and, and other uh, very clever ways that China's been able to uh, attract our American businesses. But I think now we're realizing that with that attraction comes a lot of handcuffs in terms of losing your um, intellectual property, in terms of uh, you know the investments, in terms of disclosures uh, that our companies have to do. But it, you know, if the shoe's not on the other foot, I think they'd rather do business in this country. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, you've tried to do something very difficult here in the halls of Congress, which is to work across the aisle, to right. try to, in a very polarizing time, on issues like supply chain diversification, like infrastructure, to try to really thread that needle. And yet, is it becoming more difficult in this post-stimulus climate? Well, you know, if you think about it, a 50-50 Senate is very, very rare. And West Virginia need... has a lot of power right now. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, ha if you need another 10 votes to get a bipartisan uh, bill ac across, the, across the line, it's a big challenge. But let's look back at what we were doing before uh, we got to the 50-50 split. We passed a lot of big... Uh, uh, a lot of big items that were bipartisan, criminal justice reform, Great American Outdoors Act, all kinds of things that uh, we all had uh, buy-in on. We, that's what we should be doing. We should be vying for that bipartisan uh, sweet spot, so to speak, and realizing you can't get everything. Now, I understand there's pent-up demand uh, on the other side, but at the end of the day, I think what's best for the country is if we work together. So Democrats say get rid of the filibuster, you say? Say no way. If we don't have the filibuster, the minority has no say. I was in the House for 14 years, total majority driven and, and kind of a wild place. Uh, you know, I love it over there. But, you know, the Senate was created to be more deliberative and to be able to find the way to negotiate. And I think that's we should go back to where our strengths were. That was my conversation with Senator Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican from West Virginia. Adam Goodman, you were listening. Your reaction. I was I was not in my head about every ten seconds. She's right on. Shelley Moore Capito, by the way, is the daughter of former Governor Arch Moore. Actually, yep. my this will date me goes way back to my first political experience. Arch Moore needed to work with Democrats as well as Republicans to start rebuilding the state of West Virginia, which I think he did a tremendous job of. Of uh, back in the day when the registration was so. Uh, pro-Democrat in West Virginia that he couldn't operate any other way, but it worked and it worked well. She's right about kind of with more of a centrist message, uh, Kevin, that uh, the president did uh, unfortunately ignore when the 10 senators came, had that meeting in the White House. It could have really been an amazing yeah. shot in the arm for bipartisanship. It was not. And now what we're left mm -hmm. with is uh, we see that no Republicans, not one, have voted the bill and either the Senate or the House, not one. So yeah. this isn't an American relief plan. This is a Democrat you know, relief plan that's grounded as much in politics as it is in purpose. Gina, go ahead. 
We just heard, I think, from the senator and also from Adam, um, what is going to be the Republican talking point as we go into 2022, which is this is 91 percent, as she said to you, a wish list um, for Democrats and a little bit for COVID. And they're going to try to keep making this case. Unfortunately for them, the polls work against them. This is a bill supported by six or seven out of 10 Americans, including vast majorities of Republicans. So I'm curious to see how they do that. And I would also say on infrastructure, I was so glad you asked her about that. My big question question is, are they going to try to get things passed with 60 votes, break them off, broadband, other things, or are they going to try to go for the big, big bill? And and I don't know how they do the big bill, to be candid, especially with the political capital expended that the Republicans are saying, hey, you should have used us for for stimulus. Much more coming up next, plus Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno. I just got word that our next guest is on the line. We welcome her back to our national program, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia. Uh, Congresswoman, it's great to be here. You know, we just heard from Senator Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican of West Virginia, who was very critical of the Biden administration in terms of whether or not they negotiated with Republicans in a good faith effort on the stimulus. And she said she she would have hoped that President Biden would have done more. I take it you have a different assessment of those negotiations. Well, I am always a fan of bipartisan negotiations. I think it's important that we bring as many voices to the table about how we solve and address uh, both our largest, most expansive problems, but also, uh, you know, everyday issues that we need to work on through legislation. Um, Ultimately, this is about keeping the momentum going that we have in what we're seeing back home in our communities relative to the virus. We need greater support for vaccinations and the deployment of vaccinations. We need support to schools. We need support to, you know, to those who are facing unemployment. The current unemployment benefits are set to expire this weekend. Um, so while I'm always a fan of uh, negotiations and efforts to bring as many people to the table as possible, time is of the essence in responding to this crisis. So, you know, as we pivot now to the post-stimulus talks, infrastructure, in particular comes up. How much money should American taxpayers be prepared that they're going to have to pay for to get infrastructure accomplished? I think it's I think the the question that I will be asking myself when I'm looking at the programs and the ideas that are going to be put forth through the process of of ongoing infrastructure discussions will be what are the investments that we need to make in our country? What are the places where we are really falling short? Of, uh, of, of where we should be as a nation. Our report card on infrastructure is not a good one. And uh, what are the places where investing in our nation's infrastructure, be it roads and bridges, be it broadband internet, uh, in communities like the one I represent, will in fact long-term uh, be so beneficial to the larger economy? And so what investments are we willing to make and do we recognize as necessary? And, and you've been 
probably one of the most uh, f uh, at the forefront of cybersecurity in particular in particular for digital infrastructure in the Democratic caucus. Uh, you previously served in the CIA uh, prior to uh, your time as an elected official. Uh, Congresswoman, I mean, it should how important are some of those themes for the internet, for digital infrastructure to be included in the broader infrastructure package that we're not just talking about roads and bridges? Yeah, so I think there's there's a I would have a couple comments to make in response to your question. First and foremost, there are communities around the country, including in central Virginia, just a short drive from Washington, D.C., uh, in the counties I represent, where people cannot get Internet hooked up at their home. Mm. It's just not possible. There's there's no business case to be made for local providers. And so there are homes across my district where people can't get Internet. Um, and so the, the basic infrastructure that allows for kids to be able to work from home or people to be able to work from home or, frankly, our farmers and producers to be able to use uh, precision agricultural technologies that require Internet hookups, those things are lacking. So that basic infrastructure, I mean, that laying of fiber, like that is as basic of an infrastructure as laying a telephone wire or as putting a road down that leads from point to point. It is just in the digital sense. Uh, so that's, that is firmly and clearly uh, an issue of infrastructure. Then how we safeguard the Internet, how we recognize the threats that exist in the 21st century or even that exist, uh, you know, right now in 2021, that becomes a, a much broader discussion. Some of it's basic Internet uh, infrastructure security. Um, and and that, that will be, I think, a discussion that needs to be had um, outside of the larger infrastructure conversation that will need to be, uh, you know, going through committees, Homeland Security, that will need to be, you know, recognizing threats from from non-state and from foreign actors that might seek to, uh, you know, target a vulnerabilities within our uh, larger infrastructure. But but I, I don't think that there will be um, the crux of those conversations, I don't believe, will be part of the, you know, the actual yes. investments in building it out. Congresswoman, it's Jeannie Zeno in New York, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you. As somebody on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I wonder, given uh, your vantage point and as we look around the world, um, not just in terms of cyber attacks and, and you know what we saw with solar winds, but even more broadly, where do you see us vulnerable? And do you see a will to work across, across the aisle to address some of those vulnerabilities, whether it's China or elsewhere? So we continue to be vulnerable to disinformation campaigns, frankly. Uh, and this is a major issue because they're not as clear in their offensive nature, uh, in, in the way that they attack the very foundation of our democracy and uh, the information that the American public can or can't trust. And just to give an example, there's been recent reporting that uh, Russian intelligence services are pushing out disinformation related to the Pfizer vac vaccine. Um, and that is unbelievably. Wait a minute. I got to come in here. They're pushing false. The Russians are pushing false yeah. information on getting people vaccinated. I mean, how, yeah. how do we how do we hold them accountable? First, they were doing solar winds. <laughs> now they're doing vaccines. I mean, and, it, and this is part and parcel. And, and I think what what has at times been frustrating for me is if they had, you know, be it Russia, be it China, be it any non-state actor, um, if a foreign entity had, in fact, bombed American infrastructure or yep. killed American citizens, right, we would be rallying together 
recognizing this threat. It's a shared threat. We are Americans. They are attacking us. But they continue to, and, you know, it's well documented out in public reporting in the Mueller report, systematically they endeavor to push disinformation campaigns that seeks to divide American public, seeks to misinform the American public, seeks to make them look better. I mean, there's a there's a whole variety of reasons why they engage in this sort of behavior. But it is an attack on the information that Americans can and cannot um, uh, you know, accept within this, the public sphere. This is and, such and a great question, Jeannie. United <laughs> in that sense that they are they are assaulting the foundations of what we can trust in our country. But, and I think that every American should just be horrified and offended by that. Let me let me follow up here. Because when, sure. when, the set, when the chairman of the Senate Intel Committee, Mark Warner, was on this program uh, just the other week, and he, it, we were talking about solar winds, and he, he proposed, Congressman Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia with us, he proposed uh, utilizing, whether it's NATO was his example, to create some type of international rules of the road uh, as it relates to cyber. He used the example of when there is armed conflict, when there's war, people, yep. if there's a Red Cross... Uh, if there's a Red Cross on an ambulance, uh, folks agree that they aren't going to harm that vehicle. Should yep. should do we need to have some type of an agreement? Because the idea of of of, of meddling in whether or not Grandma gets a vaccine is is just abhorrent. That's right. Uh, so without knowing the full scope of uh, Senator Warner uh, yes. you know, proposal or or whether or not it's kind of drawn out in, into actual policy. Um, in principle, yes, he's exactly right. He's, there, there aren't rules of the road. You know, we in, in talking it through, it, it sounds abhorrent. In talking it through, it sounds just unthinkable. But the reality is that without rules of the road, it's, it's totally permissible. And without rules of the road, it's also then difficult when we see foreign individuals advertising on uh, social media platforms that have a usership here in the United States or elsewhere, uh, you know, and, and notably when you have information campaigns and paid advertisements out there, I, I actually led a bill in Congress or lead a bill in Congress that's focused on when you share information, um, it, you should know, well, on the foreign agent side, if a foreign agent chooses to purchase ads and information uh, within a social media network, that that it should be clear right, that, that you know who's buying what ads. But so frequently when you share ads, that, that doesn't get shared, you know, you, you can't track what started as a promotional thing. And, you know, we're used to seeing, and you know, I'll use Twitter as an example, you're used to seeing promoted if something is put before you. Same thing on, on Facebook. But uh, depending upon the platform, when you share pieces of information, what was clearly promoted, and I knew someone had paid to put it before my eyes, if I share it and it gets to you, Kevin, then you think that that's something that I really yep. think is important. You don't know that eventually, that initially someone paid for me to see it in the first place. And so well, that paid content becomes far more grassroots feeling and authentic feeling, even though it started as an advertisement. Now they've got the, the fake videos, like that Tom Cruise thing that went viral. Congresswoman okay. Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia, I can't thank you enough. This is such an important interview and an important conversation, uh, especially as the misinformation in cyber yep. continues. Uh, we really appreciate you stopping by. That's Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat from Virginia. Jeannie, I love that question that you asked her because it, it really, and, and the point that she made afterwards about uh, revealing who is behind 
advertisements. I go back to my days on the campaign trail when I was in Iowa, and I would see an ad in Jen Jacobs' country in Iowa that would say, you know, vote for candidate X. But if you're on a social media platform and you see a, an attack ad, it doesn't say paid for by the Russian government, but it should. It should. And I, I'm so curious our view yeah. on, on the appointment or pending appointment of Lena Khan and Tim Wu and whether this is an indication yeah. that we're going to see a more aggressive regulatory agenda coming out of the Biden administration as it pertains to security, but also the tech giants overall. You know, that would have been a great question. We always never enough time. Adam never Goodman, enough time. <laughs> Adam Goodman's been listening. He's a GOP media strategist. Adam, I would take it that on the intel front, that's probably an area where Republicans and Democrats agree. Do we have that? I think so. Go ahead. Yes. You, so sorry. Um, you never have to apologize to me. I'm sorry. I'm trying ahead. to get off speaker. Trying to get off speaker. <laughs> um, by the way, that was a great interview. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm a Republican. I really enjoyed hearing the representative talk about uh, a number of those subjects, including uh, the problems we have with, with cyber warfare. You know, but when you talk about ads and who's behind an ad, you know, I'm an ad maker. So I'm starting to think, oh, my God, you mean all these years my ads have been fighting the Russians? They, they're the ones on the other side of the, of the aisle that have been fighting my ads? Um, no, but uh, in, terms of, you know, in terms of cybersecurity, obviously, this is a unifying, you know, a value, you might say, in America. And it was, it was good to hear, again, the representative, the way she addressed it. She's right. Uh, and I think we have to address it with serious purpose. Jeannie, you mentioned uh, just the broader the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, nomination or the rumored uh, nomination from, from Biden in that Politico report in terms of, of, of Lena Khan and, and what that would represent, especially in the GameStop era, in the era of Democrats like Senator Warren calling to break up big tech, and in the era of the post-Trump Republican Party, uh, where they're calling on Section 230 reforms. That really could be a, a marker, so to speak, in this particular uh in this particular moment for the SEC and for the Biden administration? It could. And, and you know, it, it is a big shift from what we saw from the Obama administration. So as much as people talk about Biden as, you know, Obama 2.0 in some respects, this would be a big shift away. And of course, Donald Trump's presidency, to your point, has a big role in that. And 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 I love what Adam said. And I, I think it is an area where we've seen this, you know, bipartisan agreement on the need to do something from two different perspectives. Now, again, if she's nominated, if this goes through. And if there is this movement, it's certainly something that big tech is going to be watching closely. I'm doing a class right now on political risk, and we were talking about this all day because the risks to these tech companies, as we look at what happened in Australia recently, and you move some of that over to the U.S., that is big news. Well, in terms of the risk also, I mean, do you think that Silicon Valley just miscalculated about five or six years ago in terms of the onslaught of conversation that they were going to be faced with? Jeannie, Professor Zeno? I do. I think they did. I think they they tried, but they were a little bit late in terms of self-regulation. Now they're asking for some sort of regulation, but I think it's a bit too late. And when you see a confluence of Democrats and Republicans on this, as we have, it's coming down the pike. We've seen it in Europe. We've seen other parts of the world. It's coming here. And I think it's it, it bodes enormous change, both economically and technologically for these companies.
All right, let's let's reset here. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. I'm joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Adam Goodman. Uh, he, of course, is a, a longtime Republican media strategist. And, you know, I, Adam, you've got a column out on the Hill talking about political risk for Governor Andrew Cuomo, the rise and the reckoning. Uh, this has been a story that has really been gripping uh, New York City, in particular, talk of the the politics. Uh, I mean, it you you describe it as a slow motion car crash where the unthinkable becomes the inevitable. He's not resigning, though, Adam Goodman. Do you think he can hold on? Uh, he can't hold on. The, the, when when this first That's when everything started to, hear that to break, from Adam Goodman. Yeah, we, he he can, and 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 you know, denial is a very strong, <laughs> very strong reaction in in the public universe to, to pressure and crisis there's it's, it's total denial what what was happening when, when we went beyond the nursing home I, i'll call it a scandal because it was really a cover-up and into the first allegation from lindsey boylan about sexual harassment and i saw the reaction of andrew cuomo and, and i actually did a lot of research um on to, to remember all over again about his past and the family and everything he has an entire history uh, Kevin, uh, uh, you might say bullying and harassing uh, as a weapon or as an, a tool of governing, not a weapon, but a tool of governing. And so when the first accuser came out on the sexual harassment front, the first thing they did, uh, the governor and his team, he they denied it. Then they went and attacked the accuser, you know, textbook. They attacked the accuser, tried to muddy her. And then the second uh, he said, and then the third, and while when the second uh, allegation hit, I, I've seen this before. I've seen this, and so have you. Uh, you go back to Herman Cain. When Herman Cain ran for president, and the first allegation surfaced, saying he was inappropriate uh, with a with a woman professional in the professional environment, um, and he denied it. I said to the team, I was actually on the Herman Cain team for six weeks. It was a great six week assignment. Um, and I said, you've got to come out right now and say, if there's anything I've ever done that was taken the wrong way, I'm so profoundly sorry. They told me I'm out of my mind. Tea Party has never agreed to you know, anything like that. It sounds like capitulation. And I said, what you're going to do is you're going to encourage other women, if there are other women involved, to come forward. And, of course, they did. That's what happened with Andrew Cuomo. When he went after the first accuser, I said, oh, here we go again. And now we're up to six accusers. The sixth one uh, has been identified yet, but has come forward apparently today. Um, and he keeps saying that he's done nothing wrong, it, it, that this is just about the way it was interpreted. In today's world, he's done. And, and the fact that he's not taking these women more seriously means others who he's probably either harassed or other people he's worked with that he just kind of brutally harassed, perhaps beyond sexually harassed, uh, these people are now coming forth. He is done, done, done. The only question is, when you're in this position, and now you're fighting for legacy, you're not fighting for a fourth term as governor anymore, you're fighting for legacy, survival. How do you kind of bow out gracefully and hold something uh, of your reputation intact? That will be the subject of my next column. Uh, be coming <laughs> Sometimes out in, I feel like you write your columns days. when you're on air with me. But, but Jeannie Zeno, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear a behind-the-scenes insight of a, of a political operative give us a glimpse into what a previous campaign, in this situation a Republican, uh, 
to give us a behind the scenes seat of, of those internal conversations. But uh, from your perspective in New York, I mean, what are you hearing? I love hearing Adam talk about Herman Cain and the six weeks. It, it brought me back. Um, you know, a, a couple of things. Number one is be careful what you wish for. If, if Donald Trump had been reelected, I'm not so sure that Gavin Newsom and uh, Andrew Cuomo may be having the difficulties they're having. They seem to have some kind of cover, if you will, when everybody was focused on Trump. So there is that. I think there's also the fact that Adam raised fourth terms have never been good for New York governors. And as somebody who's lived here a long time, I can tell you this is, a, you know, the worst kept secret. And, you know, go back to Joe Percoco, go back to the Moreland Commission. This is somebody who has been skirting the edges for a long time. Interestingly, however, I talked to several Democrats today. They still, you know, Andrea Stork-Cousins, others have called for him to step down. They still, I'm talking people on the ground, like what he did during COVID. They put the nursing home thing aside. They like what he did, and they feel to a certain extent that this is not scientific, but they feel this is something of a partisan attack on Cuomo. So I think he's going to try to play that, but I think the fourth term is probably done. He's going to fight for legacy, and his publisher has said they're not going to be pushing that book anymore. that's i mean and we i mean and and, you know a lot i i hear the the humor and i know i mean it's but a lot of people and especially in the halls of congress i mean i was up there today and they're not laughing about that about those nursing homes and so i i I, fifteen thousand deaths or more i mean we don't know actually so it is you know the 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 sexual harassment allegations are incredibly serious that is deadly and so they it's serious it's it, it's very serious, and it's definitely a story that we have uh, been carefully keeping tabs on, and we will continue uh, to to monitor that situation as well as the situation out uh, in in California with what's going on with the recall. Uh, all right, coming up next, we the panel stays, and we talk more policy and politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Republican media strategist Adam Goodman. I want to talk about uh, U.S. and China relations, but I really do want to want to talk about a story uh, that I alluded to yesterday 17.1 million Americans tuned into that Harry and Meghan story. But it is fascinating to watch how this has reverberated this week. A royal marriage was never going to end racism. Pankaj Mishra writes on Bloomberg Opinion. And the issues that this interview, I mean, regardless of your opinions on them, uh, panel, but the issues that this has r- raised 
Uh, and and I think the Wall Street Journal put it Team Windsor versus Team Celebrity. I mean, it's it's fascinating. The Queen put out a statement today. It it, it is unlike anything that I've experienced in in uh, covering politics for for that matter. Uh, to see just how rocky this relationship with the Royals has become. Jeannie, I'll let you start. It, it is uh, so so fascinating because one thing I've heard from friends I have overseas is that the view, it seems, from the United States is much, much different yeah. than it is from England. And that's been stunning to me. And so they're, you know, whether it is, you know, they are much more protective of the queen, which is understandable. She's a beloved figure over there. Um, you know, the view over here is very different. And I keep wondering, would it be different if this had happened, you know, say, before the Me Too movement, before Black Lives Matter? How much has that played into it? But this has been like a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a just a storm over here. And now that this played over there, I, I'm hearing that the feedback, at least, or the response over there is very different. In terms of putting it in a broader conversation about different cultures, Americans in the UK, Adam, and and attacks on institutions i mean what are you what are you gleaning because i also think here there's been a polarizing response hillary clinton weighed in on this white house press secretary jen Psaki weighed in on this uh, and they were appearing to be more sympathetic uh to prince harry and Meghan than republicans were i'm curious adam for for your analysis god that's a great question uh two two responses one you use the word institutional we've had a disintegration of the institutional pillars in society over the last you know 10 to 20 years uh pew research i think is the one that does that great survey uh once or twice a year and only three institutions quote unquote are above the 50 percent approval line they happen to be small business the military and depending on the day police everything else the supreme court our public schools everything else everything political is below the cut line so one is it's sad to see once again an institutional pillar of the world, in this case, uh, the royal family being shredded by this interview. I think the optics, uh, not intended, by the way, are unfortunate because here you see a royal family is getting a royal lashing from Harry and Meghan, while Philip may be fighting for his life at 99 years of age in a hospital. And so when uh, uh, Jeannie, and I'll call Jeannie professor, because I noticed when she makes a good point, Kevin. You always say professor. It's know. very rare, uh, and No, that's not, you know, I, I learn from her every day. I'm just, you know, I'm just a kid from Delco. Go ahead. So, <laughs> so when, 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 when the professor was So my dad told me over the weekend, promote. jump in the net shall appear. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So when the professor was talking about the reaction, of, I totally get that. I totally get that. And, and, and I also understand the reaction here in America, but I hope we... We take from this not something that's titillating as we see, again, the imperfections, the human imperfections of, of a family, but that we ask the larger questions here moving forward, where when you come, you know, I'm always in a, I've, like so many people in the field, Kevin, I'm, I'm asked all the time, well, can you tell me about so-and-so or so-and-so? And I always say no. It's why I never wrote a kiss and tell all book. I think it's a violation of what I think is an unspoken oath I take when I work with candidates which is to keep confidences. That's no longer the, the case anymore. And I think with all the laundry well, being kind of aired out, it's so uh, smart. It so, so easily, 
it's it just unfortunately has collateral damage in this case uh, at a time when I, the royal family. I do want to get help. back to to geopolitics, but I, I do think the story is important. I do think the story does warrant airtime, and I think the question that I've been asking myself, and uh, as this has reverberate it is the talk of the town seriously and nothing like it to be up on capitol hill and people talking about the royals but the question is can how you deliver a message overshadow the importance of the message that's what i keep thinking about is the mechanism you choose to deliver your point does that ever overshadow your point whether it's a politician communicating via social media or a royal couple sitting down with you know, a, a news icon. I don't know. I don't know. Um, all right, let's move on. So there's this massive story on the Bloomberg Terminal uh, with regards to the U.S. and China and delegates uh, uh, or delegations for both countries that they are going to be uh, talking to each other. So here we go again. They are they are now going to be talking to each other. Jeannie, one of the threads that's emerged over the past couple of weeks on this program is the differences between the Trump administration and the Biden administration in terms of not the tone, but the actual tactics of what they, if there are any differences in how to negotiate with China. There appears, as we just heard on this program with Senator Shelley Moore Capito and Congresswoman Spamberger, to be a lot of agreement in terms of policy from a national security perspective and a manufacturing perspective to protect supply chains from China. It's fascinating to me because it's something I've asked you and several other people repeatedly is what is the difference between the Biden administration's approach to China? And to your point, what is is equally becoming clear, I don't know what the difference is yet, but what's becoming clear is that there is this sort of odd widespread agreement in the United States amongst Republicans and Democrats that we do need to protect ourselves from China. It's something that goes back several years now, but I do think Donald Trump played a key role in bringing that to the forefront. But how we do that, there's still is not a clear path, at least in my mind, on how we do that. And of course, there's this new sort of fictional book out in the last few days talking about a potential, you know, World War III, if you will, between China and the U.S. So the fear, because I always look to fiction and film and those kinds of things, the fear is palatable and it's real. But what we do about it is the thing that still seems unclear. And I'm not sure I've ever gotten a good answer from Joe Biden on that. I mean, you know, Adam, come in here because because everyone's favorite uh, topic up on Capitol Hill to 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 fight with is China, especially from a rhetorical standpoint, Republicans and Democrats. So uh, what what are you going to be looking for for how the Biden administration navigates sort of the opening bid, so to speak? One of the, the things that I've tried to bring to this coverage is the importance of the upcoming Beijing Olympics and how there are now lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who are raising questions as to whether or not they should still uh, hold the U.S. should participate in those Olympics. Uh, but this is a really tough, tough issue in a global economy. Well, you know, I, I see this whole situation, Kevin. I, I don't know why it occurred to me. It was almost like the transition in New York City going from Rudy Giuliani as mayor to, to Michael Bloomberg, where you went from a kind of a revolutionary, tough, taking down all you know things that stood in the way of progress to someone who really managed the revolution. You needed both parts. Uh, Donald Trump really started this. He was tough. He was confrontational. First president in, in half a century. 
that really took on, you might say, the China question. Now the question for President Biden is what to do about it, how to take how to respond to that with remedies and resolutions that that take a, you know, really play on the now emotion of the moment, which is we've kind of had enough and we want things to be fair again and we want to be strong uh, and we don't want to be pushed around. And I think those are those are new questions that you might say a more of a management mentality and Joe Biden uh, might be ready to take on as opposed to the revolutionary yeah. in this case was Donald Trump. No more drama. March is Women's History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is looking back at some of those who played a vital role in American history. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1959, Ruth Handler, a co-founder of Mattel, introduces Barbie to the world. She brought it to crowds at the American International Toy Fair in New York. The inspiration for the doll began when Handler was traveling in Europe and her 15-year-old daughter, Barbara, spotted a German Lily doll. But as the years went on, Barbie would be mocked as outdated and sexist and criticized for promoting a largely white, gendered image of beauty with an unrealistic body image. But in 1980, Mattel started to become more inclusive when it introduced the first black Barbie. And today, Barbie's dolls come in more than 20 skin tones, close to 100 hair colors, a dozen eye colors, and five body types. Those changes served Barbie well because in 2020, Barbie generated its best sales growth in two decades. Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. My thanks to the panel, and journalism lost a giant today. Roger Mudd passed away. He was a network news anchor, a correspondent, and he co-moderated Meet the Press. He was 93. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.